Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, and this podcast is for investment professionals only. The pattern of populations is changing. In many places, especially the developed world, people are having fewer children, but they're living longer. Emerging economies have quite another trend, though. A boom in the under-30s, sometimes too many for their countries to find work for. You've probably heard all this before. It's not a surprise. But what do these huge shifts mean for societies and for investors? What challenges are there for governments, businesses and individuals as we work out how to support or employ the old, the young and indeed ourselves? Well, with me in the studio to discuss demographics are three fidelity experts. First, David Buckle, Head of Investment Solutions design here at Fidelity. Now, David, part of your job is to think uh, in novel ways uh, about how people can fund their retirement. What's the most significant shift that you've seen in the way the industry is approaching this? Oh, by far the most significant is the notion of needing to invest in the retirement phase as opposed to cashing out at age 65. And uh, in other words, that it's, that's not a done deal. You're going to carry on trying to um, coop some uh, returns for the many years that many people are retired nowadays. In, in a pension sense, we all live too long um, and therefore the money doesn't last. So it needs to grow at least through the first phase of retirement to make sure it lasts for the rest of your lifetime. Totally good. Well, with me also is uh, Portfolio Manager, um, Anita Venimiko, who runs Fidelity's Demographic and Consumer Funds. Now, um, Anita, I imagine that both the areas that you cover complement each other, the impact of changing populations and their behaviours. What's the most interesting trend that touches both of those? Well, the most interesting and fascinating trend is how people today in their 50s think that they are still young and how they spend their money. So we all talk about aging and we all talk about the population declining, um, the spending power declining, but I think psychologically people are younger in their minds. They're younger, older, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> totally good. Okay. And um, completing our lineup today is Julian Webb, um, Global Head of Fidelity's Workplace Investing Business. Now, Julian, uh, you're responsible for uh, the pension schemes of some 1 million end investors all over the world. Um, how are the needs of those members evolving? They are certainly changing uh, in light of what we're seeing in terms of sort of global demographic sort of changes. I think the most fundamental thing is that people now have their own um, responsibility uh, for their retirements. I think the shift has clearly moved from state to either the private individual or indeed their employers. So I think people are now recognising they need more support and help to save for um, an adequate retirement income. So a lot of people are having to get their heads around this. It's not, not just the people around this table. Indeed. Well, Julian, David, Adonetta, welcome to you all. Um, David, could you set the scene for us, please? What challenges do the demographics um, pose in places which are getting older? Yes, there's two big ones. The first one is that when you retire, you have to fund until the, eight, the point of your death. The longer you live, the more the money's got to last. That, that's the clear driver in demographics. And because that phase um, is actually quite short in, in the sense of a lifetime, just a few years extra longevity actually mean quite a big impact to the work your savings have to do. 
The second thing is there's a question mark about how much the state can provide with the demographic shift of how many young people are supporting how many old people. It's not clear how much pension provision can come from the state in the future. So how do the economics that underpin all of this uh, affect those points that you're making? They're not helpful, actually. Um, economic growth is how many people are working and how much is each one producing. Uh, the population growth of the world is slowing. So there are less people or less growth in people. So we need them to be more productive. And with an ageing population, actually, typically that corresponds to a lower productivity. And so in fact, poor productivity um, is, is a, a symptom that we're seeing in many economies, particularly these, uh, these economies that are growing older. Indeed so, yes. Okay. Well, um, Anessa, all of this sounds very worrying, um, and yet the demographic fund that you co-run looks for the opportunities that these shifts um, throw up. So you're looking for the good news. Um, yes, uh, Shine, uh, uh, <laughs> radiate some optimism in this uh, discussion, please. Okay, so so the demographic fund is a long-only fund, so obviously we are looking for the good news. And um, for us, uh, the most exciting news is the fact that the older people will have to spend money on um, basically trying to stay younger and healthier longer. And this is a very clear trend, uh, the, the medicine technology. There are many companies that are coming up with solutions. Um, the, the baby boomers, retiring baby boomers, have very high spending power. And as I said before, they think they are young. They want to enjoy their life. Um, and, and, and their spending patterns are shifting from... Um, from uh, things which are um, maybe necessary to things which are maybe much more discretionary that allow them to, to, to enjoy life and, 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 and stay, stay healthy and, and fit. So what are the types of things that you're looking for? Where do you uh, specifically start to sort of pick up um, on those, those changing trends? So something which is maybe very superficial, but um, skin care, companies are big beneficiary of uh, of aging because as, as we know uh, or as we hope uh, skincare products do help us looking younger and and I've seen studies that show uh, a lady in the 50s buys uh, five times more products that, that that a lady who is in her 20s uh, so obviously companies that sell skincare products are quite uh, quite a clear beneficiary That's but a really good statistic <laughs> have you got the same for men in their 50s and uh, how much well, that compares with men in their 20s? You know, so we are now talking about the metrosexual men who care about what they look like a lot, actually. And in Asia, we are seeing increasing demand from men for skincare. And um, this is driven partially also by social media, where you want to project your image and look young. Um, so we are seeing uh, quite a strong trend on of growth, uh, but it's not the baby boomers. I think it will be the, the, the generation of millennials. As they get older, they will spend more and more on skincare. Interesting. Now, Julian, I, I, I'm dying to ask you about your, your skincare regime and your, um, your, your social media profile. We can, we can certainly talk yeah, about yeah. that. <laughs> you, you look fabulous. For those of you who are watching in black and white, Julian looks great. But um, um, we've, we've got people who are, who are living longer, they're feeling younger. Um, as Anessa was explaining, yes. they want to look younger. Um, they're also staying longer um, in work. Um, how are the companies having to, um, to adapt to an ageing workforce? Yeah, I think, I think you know, this adds potentially a lot of value and benefit to employers, particularly as you know, the um, more senior in age uh, their workforce is, the more experienced, by definition, they can bring to that uh, organisation. And I think you know, hiring young talent can be quite challenging 
into an organisation. So retaining your senior, more experienced talent, I think, is also important. So what we're seeing are a lot of um, uh, large employers in particular uh, having a much more flexible approach in terms of, you know, when people uh, would uh, expect to be retiring, they are designing their benefit structures in a way that accommodates um, an older workforce as well. So I think employers absolutely understand this. However, to David's earlier point, there probably comes a point in time where the older generation become less productive. So equally, employers don't want an ageing workforce that is becoming uh, less productive. So they want to make sure that they are financially secure so they can actually retire at an appropriate age and not just to have to continue working for income purposes. I suppose there's an element of education as well, mm. um, not just of the companies, um, but of the employees um, as well. Very much so. Very much so. And one of the big, big trends that uh, we're seeing, particularly in the US, is this concept of financial wellness. So I think historically employers have really focused on retirement savings and making sure that their workforces are adequately catered for, for retirement income. But I think increasingly, whether it's for the older generation or indeed the younger generation, this concept of financial well-being, financial wellness beyond retirement, in other words, beyond retirement savings. So whether that's on short-term uh, cash flow, debt management, your family's financial wellness as well. So we're seeing uh, employers setting up these programs to inform and engage with their workforce on this broader topic of financial wellness. David? Yes, and it extends into retraining as well. Um, it's unlikely, given that this is all at the same time as a technological revolution, it's unlikely that people will have a single career for this false lifespan. So the likelihood of needing to switch gears mid-career is becoming greater. And these milestones that are now available for how close are you to a retirement point, um, you will probably need to check those milestones at the same time of potentially shifting gear in your career. How do we pay as, as, as countries, as economies, how do we um, think about paying for people in um, their retirement? Um, because that has to change as well. Yes, there's, there's typically three pillars which people lean on. Um, the first is the state, the second is the company, the third is the individual. And the state's stepping back in many places. Yes, you just look at the, the sheer numbers, um, that, that's the, the number of people retiring, the number of money on the balance sheet, and um, it's likely that that's going to have to shift. Certainly, um, as an individual saver planning for retirement, I don't want to rely on that government piece as a significant part of, of my retirement. Yeah, I, I would just just quickly add. I think I think the state clearly uh, plays a really really important role in retirement provision, particularly for the uh, less well off. And I think what we're seeing is this shift from governments focused on good quality, adequate state provision for the lower paid, and then for uh, medium to higher paid individuals, putting more emphasis on them to save for their own retirement and become less reliant on the state. So I think that's quite an important shift. But I think, you know, overall, this is a fact that actually state do want, governments, countries do want to backtrack a little bit on this provision. That's either by reducing the absolute amount of retirement income that the state provides, or often and increasingly 
um, increasing the age when you become eligible to take those benefits. So a transfer of responsibility to individuals. Yes. Um, but at the same time, there's a transfer of risk um, from the companies that were providing defined benefit schemes to defined contributions. So there is an awful lot for people to get their heads around. Is it, are, are they succeeding in, in this preparation? I, I, I think it's just started in reality. I mean, this move from defined benefit, guaranteed uh, retirement income to defined contribution has really been evolving over the last 20 years. But I think the reality is in a lot of the countries, in particular, the, you know, the sort of more mature countries, um, that actually, you know, the concept of defined benefit has more or less disappeared. A lot of people say, well, that's a negative thing, but actually it can be a positive thing. So if we bring it back to the demographic changes and the flexibility that the workforce is looking for, actually having defined contribution can be a significant advantage. So for example, in retirement, we know that um, you know when you just retire, you've hopefully got your, your health, you need to enjoy your free time, you need more money. So you need a higher income at that point in time. And then as you become older, um, actually, you're less mobile and probably have less opportunity to um, you know, enjoy your free time and you need less money. And then the third and final sort of cycle, actually, as you um, go into uh, later life, you perhaps have less good health and you need health care. So a spike in, you need, in healthcare spending. That's there. right, and therefore you need more money at the end. Whereas a defined benefit plan, by definition, gives you a pretty static level of income throughout your retirement. Okay, and, and these are the patterns, Anetta, that you were talking about of um, what, how you're trying to uh, spot where the opportunities are. Yes, because we, we see, obviously, a lot of the developed countries, but also some of the emerging market countries, aging quite fast. But this aging at this point in time is mostly the baby boomers moving to kind of a bit more advanced age. Let's let's not call that old age. Uh, and it's a time where they they still have a lot of savings, spending power and, and willingness to spend and enjoy their life. And maybe they are not thinking so far ahead. But also, this is the population that has a lot of wealth in their houses. They have experienced uh, the global housing boom and they have quite a lot of money saved in, in, in the main asset that they possess. So obviously the question planning forward from de- for them is when they get into their 80s, will they be able to release the equity from the house and use that to pay for their retirement and for the, for the, for the care that they will need? So I think people in their late 60s are not yet so concerned about the, the need to, to actually have savings. And may, maybe that's that's not very responsible on their part because the time flies quite fast. Although that generation, that cohort, have got assets, and this is quite different um, to people who are, who are following them. Um, and they are also the people who tend to vote. And I just want to bring in governments here, um, David, because um, part of the problem in sorting out um, some of the fundamental issues um, around here is that the that the electoral cycle is too fast um, for anybody really to grasp the nettle and, and, and make some of the painful changes that perhaps um, uh, need, need to be done. Yes, that's correct. Yes, the, these... Uh, the, the cycle of retirement is way longer than the cycle of, of an election. Um, and of course, as we get an older and older society, they represent a bigger and bigger group that the governments are trying to, to pander to to win votes. But I think the, the, the overarching problem here is that pensions, state pensions, actually haven't been around for that long. 
And when they started, you received them when you were 65, and the expected life uh, life expectancy was 49. So it was really designed for people who unexpectedly lived on. So the notion of you retire with still 15, 20 years of life left and you do cruises and golfing holidays and all those things, that was never really planned for in, from the, the government's perspective. So what is the answer that we, we, we realise that um, things aren't as good anymore and um, people like you and me have got to work until our mid-70s, mid-80s or beyond? Well, likely or... we've got to work longer, but more importantly, if you're able to save, start saving. That, that's the most important yeah. message. Yeah. And, and I think, I think um, there are particular countries and governments that are a bit more progressive on this. So we're are... doing it well? Well, I think the UK actually is, is doing it pretty well because when you talk to, um, you know, um, other governments and, uh, and and sort of policy makers, often they are referring back to the UK as a potential model to follow. So, for example, you know, in the UK, we still have very, very generous levels of contributions that you can make into a pension plan with full tax relief. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, if you're if you're paid lots of money, then you know it, it, it gets scales back. For for the vast majority of people, these are still on a relative global comparison basis, very high levels of contributions with tax relief. I think I'd also say that the government, by introducing auto enrolment, has been seen to be very progressive because this has now brought uh, a lot more people into the workplace uh, retirement uh, environment, which they wouldn't have been in prior uh, to that. And then finally, I would just say that. These days, when you retire in the UK, you have complete flexibility as to how you wish to receive your income. So I think that's had political consensus uh, in the UK. All of the political parties are behind it. It is a very long-term strategy. By comparison, we see other countries who limit the uh, tax relief or limit contributions because of the cost to the state here and now, rather than taking a longer-term view. And, and Etta, when you're thinking about where to invest, do you take that into account? Do you start looking at um, where you think people are going to have um, money to spend in retirement? Uh, another example might be Australia, where um, they've got a well-funded uh, uh, system there. Does that sort of decision play um, uh, play into your thinking? Yes, I, I do think about it, but I must say it's very hard because um, at the end of the day, it's about pe- how people make their choices. And most of consumption globally is actually from wealthy people. So most of the opportunities to invest in consumer-facing businesses is catering to the wealthy people. As 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 all as we all know, they control most of the stock equities. They they control most of the housing assets, uh, and this is why I think the outlook for their consumption and also for the consumption from the world that they will be passing on to their children is quite healthy. The issue is definitely when it comes to to people that have not saved, that are not planning for the future, and this is majority of the population, um, and that will have implications for companies that sell products that cater to that level of population. So I do think about it, uh, but on aggregated basis, it doesn't look as bad as it might seem on average kind of per capita basis. Once again, a nice uh, positive <laughs> side, side to this discussion. I clearly um, come from equity. Yeah. Um, so give me an example of, of some of the countries then that are appealing to you at this broad level. So in the demographic fund, we are looking at the dependency uh, ratio, and that helps us to identify countries where, for the long term, the opportunity for consumption is very good because the ratio of those who don't work 
to those who are in the in the working force uh, is is good and stable over time. So there is a number of countries. Vietnam is a good example. India is a very good example. Indonesia, um, but most of the countries in the developed world. I mean, Japan is leading the pack, but uh, the aging of Western European countries is quite fast, uh, and obviously the same applies to China. U.S. actually has quite good demographics. Uh, it, it, it's being modeled a bit by the anti-immigration policy now, uh, but this country still has quite decent demographics and, and, and as a result, quite a good outlook for consumption. But some of the countries that you highlighted there, um, the, they're basically emerging markets. Um, you picked on um, some in, uh, in Asia. They are... Uh, a different background, a different type of place to to invest with different challenges as well. So how do you how do you um, factor all of those things um, in when you're thinking about many years in advance? You can look, for example, at a place like Vietnam, which has very young population, a country that today actually benefits from the fact that a lot of the factories are being moved from China, where labor is becoming too expensive, partially as a result of scarcity of labor in uh, China to Vietnam, and you can see the the creation of jobs at the low end moving to, 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 to more sophisticated, higher value and jobs. And as a result, what we are seeing, uh, companies like um, Zara going there and opening shops and, and, and having a big success. Uh, so we've seen that story played out in many countries before. And we can see that happening in the next decades. Exactly. So um, a, a growing middle class, more spending um, uh, and what have you. We've seen it all before. David, the question I want to ask you is um, the countries that have the demographic dividend at the moment. So they've got a bulge of people in the lower age brackets. Are they simply going to be places with a problem in, in years to come in the same way that Japan is at the forefront now and um, uh, developed markets um, like, uh, let's say, Germany um, choosing one? that's about to have a problem in Europe? Yeah, not, ne- not necessarily. Um, my personal experience of um, trying to design products for these differing countries is it's more to do with the cultural expectation of how retirement is managed. So, for example, in the Western world, it's very common to have some kind of um, life annuity product which pays you an income through retirement and then when you die, the product's over. Whereas in parts of Asia where I speak to, the response from um, the consumers there is to say, no, we don't need that much money in retirement because there's an expectation that your family takes care of you, but it wouldn't be acceptable to have that, um, that nest egg disappear on death. The idea being that that's then transferred to those that have looked after you as part of your estate. So managing the cultural issues tends to be a bigger problem than the, the demographic bit you referred to for emerging economies versus developed. So what are the products that you then have um, have thought thought through for those markets? Uh, for those ones I've just described there, something with a lump sum balloon payment at the end, for example, and potentially lower income through retirement to compensate would be more attractive to the, some of the Asian countries. Julian, you, you think about this from a, a global point of view as well and mm-hmm. on, on the business side. Yes. Um, so um, how are employers adapting, um, particularly ones that maybe operate in lots of countries? Yes, I mean, we are, we are, we're very much seeing these sort of global uh, multinational companies wanting to 
increasingly have a sort of consistent common approach to retirement provision and the broader sort of financial provision for their workforce. So to David's point, you know, it is very different country by country in terms of state provision. Um, but actually, these employers want more consistency. So they want more fairness, more equality across all of their workforce. Um, I would also add that, you know, particularly US uh, based organisations are actually now putting more workforce and increasing their workforce profile outside of the US. So increasingly, they are coming to Fidelity and asking us for help with solutions in these emerging markets where they are now actually employing quite large um, you know, volume of, of employees. Is it enough um, to start bringing about change in those markets, perhaps accelerating um, some of the developments that um, are already happening in um, the developed uh, economies? Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be um, a sudden change. But what I do know is that governments and states pay close attention to what these multinationals are doing. You know, often they are incentivizing these companies to set up businesses in these locations and they watch very closely how they employ their staff and what benefits they provide. So I think this will be very much something which will drive change through um, these um, large companies and their change programs delivering change into government and to uh, an in, interstate as well. So at a government level, they're taking notice. What about the changes that you're seeing in the way individuals are able to start thinking about the way that they save? Because I mean, certainly right at the beginning of your, your career, it, it just seems so far away yes. that most people don't want to think about it. I certainly didn't. Yeah, and I think that is the reality. So I think increasingly both individuals and their employers are giving a lot of thought to this and really thinking perhaps talking to somebody and engaging with somebody in their early 20s about a two or even five-year time horizon and certainly not a 30, 40-year time horizon. So, for example, it may be about their sort of short-term uh, cash flow, their sort of management of debt. Increasingly, actually, student debt on a global basis is becoming an issue. We often think about it as an issue here in the UK, but it's certainly an issue in the US as well. And I think increasingly what employers are looking for is What's a simple, effective way of engaging with our workforce, whether it's on a short, medium or long term horizon for their financial well-being? So as an example, um, you know, we have come up with um, some sort of core principles, what we call in retirement guidelines. And one of these, as an example, is what we refer to as a, um, a savings factor. So what multiple of your annual salary do you need to save at a particular age to make sure that you can retire on an adequate income? So, for example, to show that you're on track, that if, a milestone, it, that you're it, you're going to be okay. It, exactly right. So, if you're in, for example, in your twenties, it may be once times your annual salary as a cash equivalent that you need to have already saved for your retirement. If you're in your 30s, it may be four times. If you're in your 50s, it's probably going to be closer to eight or nine times. So a very simple way, as you say, of people just making sure that they remain on track. And we can deliver this service and this information in an easy to easy way to access. So for example, through a mobile app or on a website. So the use of technology comes into play because I think increasingly people want just an easy, simple, intuitive way of accessing this information. 
real behavioural changes then right across the board. A fascinating topic, um, Julian. I, I know that we could carry on talking about this for, for much longer, but I'm afraid uh, we're all out of time now. So Julian, David and Anetta, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.